Oh, wait, you're all broken up. Oh, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. Oh. Oh, I'm like, there should be scenes in science fiction movies where, you know, he's on the communicator to the other ship and it's just a mutual process of like, you know, it's a, you will never defeat me, Kirk. It's like, you know, could you say that again? Hold on, so say it just, again, Kirk. You yeah, cut just out. move to the left. Yeah. It's, uh, I, no, I can't. I can see you, but I can't. I can see your face. I can see the claws, but I can't hear the audio. It's, say the death uh, threat again. Hello and welcome back to Don't Touch Your Face, Foreign Policy's weekly podcast on the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Amy McKinnon, a staff writer with Foreign Policy. And I'm James Palmer, Deputy Editor at Foreign Policy. On this week's episode, we're going to look at the bioethics of challenge trials. Would you volunteer to potentially put your own life at risk and be infected with the coronavirus to speed up the development of a vaccine which could save countless lives? Later on, we'll be joined by Josh Morrison, one of the founders of One Day Sooner, an advocacy group which is already gathering volunteers for challenge trials. And we'll also be joined by Professor Nir Ayal, director of Rutgers University's new centre for population-level bioethics. But first this. The coronavirus has swept the world and forced drastic measures to defeat it. It's also proving, though, what is possible in the fight against another major global threat, climate change. Heat of the Moment is a new series by FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. It tells the story of those on the front lines of changing the way that we eat, travel, and live our lives. This podcast outlines not only the great challenges that face us, but also looks for a new path forward. Look for Heat of the Moment wherever you get your podcasts. So later on, we're going to talk about the ethics of challenge trials, which are when people are knowingly infected with the virus is a way to speed up vaccine testing. But I mean, more broadly, coronavirus, the pandemic and the response to it has been an ethical minefield across the board. The ethics of school closures, the ethics of closing businesses and putting people out of their jobs, the questions around reopening the economy, knowing that you may increase infections and put people at risk. The ethics of patient privacy and contact tracing. There's just, you know, I don't think bioethicists have ever had such a field day, um, but obviously for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, and it feels as though a lot of these questions are debated sort of on the theoretical level by bioethicists, mm. but uh, they're not really being thought through or they're being thought through only in a, a very gut level by policymakers. Mm. There isn't, I think, a deep examination of, you know, what assumptions, what um, what ideas about what's right and what's wrong are going into these policies. There's just a sort of charge towards one thing or another, whether that's we must save every life possible or whether it's the current American policy of throwing bodies on the fire in order to get the stock market up. Mm. And these are not abstract questions confined to philosophers. I mean, previous administrations, Clinton, Bush, Obama, have all had uh, bioethics commissions to advise them on questions around things like stem cell research, gene editing, abortion, and things like that. Um, and the Trump administration is the first one for a long time that actually doesn't have a bioethics committee. And that's been a real noticeable absence from the coronavirus task force, which is ironic when you know this is an administration which has prided itself on defending the sanctity of life 
But I mean, with the Trump administration, there's always been this feel with a lot of the Christian stuff that certainly on Trump's part, this isn't anything to do with his own morality mm. or his own convictions. This is a kind of glib political reflex to his base. It's not even as if they've engaged with theologians on this. You know, look, the Va- you, you look at the Vatican right now has commissions trying to determine these questions. You look at any major religious group and they're thinking through these issues. But instead, with the current American government, we get Paula White calling upon God to intervene supernaturally and cast out the coronavirus. <laughs> God. Oh, yeah. I really... Um feel like things are just going to just get bleaker and bleaker here now that we're starting to reopen even though we never did get a handle on infections you know look there is a moral and ethical case to be made for reopening and i think that case Mm. is basically are you causing more misery are you causing more death and suffering in the long term by this level of economic destruction of course, than, yeah. you, than you would by careful and limited reopening. And that comes down to, as with many of these questions, problems of modeling. How do you try and work out like how many deaths will a fallen GDP of 5% cause? Mm-hmm. How many deaths will forcing people to stay inside and isolated cause? And an Australian group recently, in fact, did coronavirus modeling along these lines, like... Um, you know, how many suicides will there be if we continue these measures? Mm-hmm. And they still came down in favor of quite tight lockdowns and very gradual easing. But of course, all of this depends on the assumptions you make. And we and we really have never had this situation before. Mm-hmm. We're working off very limited pools of data, not only on the virus itself, but on the way that societies cope with it. Yeah. I mean, I really fear that the US is headed for the worst of both worlds and that we've had a kind of lockdown light in which unemployment on Friday was you know just under 15 percent levels never before seen since the depression um you know countless businesses shuttered countless jobs lost lives profoundly affected for years if not decades to come and yet that wasn't implemented stringently enough and it was you know done in such a patchy way that we haven't managed to stem the spread of the virus and now that we're going to reopening it's just going to be all hell is just going to break loose and that we're going to still have the economic, you know, downsides of a lockdown, but also none of the benefits of one either. And I don't think even many of the benefits of supposedly reopening because, you know, people still aren't going to go to restaurants Mm. if they think they're going to catch the coronavirus, Yeah, if they can help it. I mean, so much of this effectively comes down to attempts to force people back to work. And we're seeing in Ohio now businesses being encouraged to snitch on their employees if their employees have been called back to work but are refusing to go back and still collecting unemployment insurance. Yeah. You can compare that to Europe where you know, there's been an active effort to try and keep people from going back to work in a lot of cases mm-hmm. under the knowledge that it's going to spread the virus further. So it's really a, I mean, you know, the whole of the US is just a dumpster fire at the moment when it comes to coronavirus handling with the exception of these sort of limited state-level efforts that ultimately can't prevail because they're going to get overridden by infections from elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we mentioned a few weeks ago that, you know, in D.C. we are very vulnerable to what neighboring states do because we're within a stone's throw away from Virginia and Maryland. And, you know, the DMV, uh, D.C., Maryland, Virginia area had for a while been pretty good at singing from the same hymn sheet on lockdowns. But I can't remember what this last week or the week before, but I was reading about Virginia now looking to reopen some restaurants with social distancing. And of course, if that leads to a spread, then we're just equally doomed here in D.C. because it's just right across the border. 
Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this comes back to these sort of ethical and legal issues. Can a U.S. state, like, close its borders? And I, mm. I mean, that seems almost impossible. And I just don't see how you can contain the virus without either individual geofencing or an actual national level policy, which is obviously not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, so far, I have feel like I've personally and that me and Alan have handled the lockdown pretty well. And it's not been as awful as I thought it would be. If you'd have told me at the beginning of the year, by the way, you're going to spend six weeks locked up in your studio apartment working from home together, I would have screamed. Um, And it's actually not been all that bad. The part I'm actually dreading more is the daily decision making questions when things do start to reopen about where is our where is our level of risk at and what kind of risks are we willing to accept to go for dinner or to meet someone for coffee or see friends are we just going to blanket not do that entirely for a year 18 months until there's a therapy or a vaccine or are we going to you know, go to a friend's barbecue in their garden, knowing that we may be putting ourselves at risk. And that's the part I'm not looking forward to that I think is going to be really exhausting and quite frankly, very scary because it's even in countries with the best of intent around this, it's not something that you can legislate on where your individual sense of risk is. And it's very hard for couples too, because you have to find that line and, you know, a shared line. Yeah. In in any household situation, especially since the U.S. has still failed to implement any kind of centralized quarantine for coronavirus sufferers, you know, you're effectively gambling with your partner's health as well as your own. And I, yeah, and I think that there's going to be a lot of attention paid at the sort of individual level to answering those kind of questions, whether it's in you know, the ethicist column or, you know, people asking Reddit, am I the asshole? <laughs> There's going to be an entire country trying to struggle with these issues. Yeah. Um, and of course, there's going to be an enormous amount of people just dumbly plunging head anyway out of delusion or idiocy mm. um, to make things worse for everybody. But not much we can do about that. Yeah. And the ultimate solution to all of this really is going to be getting a vaccine and one suggestion which has been put forward for speeding that process up is challenge trials whereby you give people a vaccine you infect them with coronavirus and you wait and see what happens that whole process is a lot more complicated and certainly more ethically thought out than I have just uh, portrayed it and so to learn about this more I spoke to Professor Nir Ayal director of Rutgers University's new center for population level bioethics here's our conversation so first of all, thank you very much for joining us. Um, thank you very much. And like a lot of people, I feel like I've been on a bit of a crash course of epidemiology and vaccine development for dummies this past few months. Challenge trials were not something that was part of my vocabulary until extremely recently. So can you just give me a rundown of, of what they are? The place challenge trials fit in in the trial uh, process for um, vaccine candidates is they come in place of some or all standard efficacy testing. Efficacy testing is the stage where uh, you actually check if the vaccine works, having verified that it seems safe and that there is some immune response. And that's usually the stage which is longest. Uh, you basically, in standard efficacy testing, you give some people the vaccine you're testing, some people placebo, and you wait for months and months to see if uh, once some of them get exposed to the virus you're trying to fight, 
Um, and of course, all of them will be trying to hide at home from that virus or donning uh, protective gear or whatnot. Many of them might not be infected at any stage. Um, once that happens, you start seeing some differences between the two groups. And that would indicate, oh, okay, maybe the vaccine works and the placebo fails. But in a challenge study, you skip through these months. You simply expose them to the virus. And you, you know that all of them were exposed. So you can use an order or more fewer participants. You get pretty immediate results. And importantly, you also you are sure to get results because in a standard efficacy trial, it the outbreak may move to the next location by the time you're done. And then the trial ends with no interpretable results and you start from scratch several months later. And what are the ethical considerations that usually come into play when you're designing a challenge trial? So the first question about challenge trials is if they are even ethical in this situation. We're talking about exposing people to a virus, which is killing many people around the world which is something we don't have a therapy against yet. How can this be justified? And our answer is if you select the participants very carefully and if you conduct the trial in a certain way, then it can be justified. So here's what we have in mind. You select for the trial only people who are young and healthy. So at ages where death from getting infected by coronavirus happens, but it's very, very rare. And that already, if you look at the numbers, pushes the risk of dying to below the risk of dying from having donated a kidney, which is something the doctors universally endorse because it helps one person. But this trial would help many, many, many people. Um, you of course, um, get very fully informed consent from everybody as you would for a kidney donation. And we recommend you select people to come, especially from areas where you have expected infections in plenty. So that two important things from, would happen from the point of view of ethics. One is, yes, in the trial, they ensure that they will get exposed to the virus. But outside, especially if they're in certain essential professions, it's very hard to ensure that. And in fact, in some areas of the world, if you select right, uh, given all predictions, there will be very high infection rates. So chances will be they will get infected anyhow. So it's it's almost more a matter of when they will get infected than whether they will get infected if they join the trial. And secondly, very importantly, in some such areas, you will have these surges of demand for critical care that uh, will block the critical care systems and create some problems potentially in seeking life support should they need it. In the trial, of course, we would guarantee everybody you would get the best available care, any therapies available, any supportive care, any critical care, and and that could make a dramatic difference. So all in all, the trial is much safer than um, one initially imagines when one hears about such a trial. And it comes with their own autonomous will. They know what they're getting into. And it's very helpful to society. So all in all, I think such a trial could be justified. An article you co-authored in the Journal of Infectious Diseases in March really spurred discussion about the use of challenge trials. What was the reaction to your article? Overall, I was very pleasantly surprised. Um, 
no hate email so far. <laughs> um, some very nice responses, some very positive responses, people supporting me from many different professions, um, uh, clinicians who work in kind of around me. Um, there are also people who express uh, concerns about uh, technicalities, about ethics, and um, always kind of to the point politely, we have a very civilized debate. We are now putting together responses. Um, so I think overall, a, a kind of good discussion. I've seen some vaccine researchers question whether or not this will actually speed up vaccine development right now, given the high rates of coronavirus penetration in some parts of the world. The argument being basically that if you want to test a vaccine, give it to some New Yorkers, turn them loose on Central Park on a sunny day, and pretty quickly some of them are naturally going to pick it up. What are the benefits, both medically and ethically, of infecting people in a lab setting instead? So there are important debates among the people who know more about the technical details uh, than I do about uh, whether indeed this cuts a lot of time, a little time, or no time at all. I'm not an expert on this. Uh, I talk to experts who believe that it could cut a lot of time. About um, the possibility of doing it otherwise, there is always the possibility when you do it in the field that um, people will be careful and you must advise them, please do not go out to Central Park. Uh, your ethical obligation is to lecture people a lot at the beginning of an efficacy trial about, look, I, I, my science would benefit if you got infected, but here's how not to get infected. And it's very important. So the, the researchers are kind of, it's, it's an interesting position to be in. They're kind of, they want it and don't want it, right? Um, Adrian Hill, a researcher who is doing an efficacy trial at Oxford University right now, made some sort of, I'm sure, uh, tug and cheek quote about this um, in the New York Times. Uh, he said, we are the only people in the UK who want this outbreak to continue just a little longer. And what he meant was, if the outbreak wanes in the UK, their trial is not going to succeed. And he already said, no worries, if it doesn't succeed, we'll go elsewhere, we'll go to Africa. Well, that's many months and potentially millions of lives lost from direct COVID-19 deaths, from the diseases that we neglect in the meanwhile, from the famines that the UK and says we'll assume biblical dimensions. So, so that's a very steep price to pay. That was Professor Nir Ayal, director of Rutgers University's new center for population-level bioethics. Hey listeners, it turns out that our collective action can stop more than just global pandemics. Discover reasons for hope on the climate crisis with Heat of the Moment, a new series from FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. Look for it wherever you get your podcasts. So, James, would you volunteer for a challenge trial? I mean, this is a bit of a, you know, irrelevant question. You've already, you've already had the Rona, but would you volunteer? Well, I don't know. I feel like the people who do that are either going to be old enough that, you know, certain devil my care attitude or young enough to feel confident in their resilience. And mm. as somebody who gets a cold every time somebody sneezes half a mile away, like I would have absolutely no confidence in doing it myself. Mm. Even if I did, I don't feel that I could put that on other people in my life. Like I'm yeah. taking this possibly fatal risk uh, when there's you know people who depend on me. It's I very much admire people who do do it, but mm. I think it's a a really you know tough decision to make. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Even though you've had the virus and you actually know what it's like to have it, that you still wouldn't, in a theoretic world where you hadn't had it, volunteer. I wouldn't roll the dice on it. No, I mean, yeah. it's not exactly playing Russian roulette. Mm, it's, yeah, you know, but what terrified me before I had the virus and you know had a comparatively mild case, as in wasn't hospitalized, mm-hmm. was even just the thought of being on a ventilator was so nightmarish. Ooh, yeah, that. Yeah, I, I think that that alone would dissuade me from the possibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about yourself? So I have a bit of an out in that I have asthma. Um, so I I would want to volunteer. Um, I think the weight of potential of a vaccine to get life around the world back to normal and the comparatively ro- low risk for someone like me who is young, otherwise in good health, I think that's a risk that I would be willing to take for the payoffs. Um, I think I would be screened out, though, in, in the real world because I do have asthma. And I also, you know, realistically speaking, would be also a little bit glad. So, Amy, you interviewed Josh Marson, who's an advocate for challenge trials and has started this new group sort of themed around this. And you were quite sceptical going in, right? So yeah, I was initially skeptical about the whole idea because I'm a strong believer in leaving science to the scientists. But having heard the whole proposal, I've actually done a 180 and I think it actually makes tons of sense that if you're going to have challenge trials, well, the big ethical question around that is, of course, the volunteers. And usually in any other context, when people are putting themselves in harm's way for the greater good, be that military or firefighters, during the pandemic, healthcare staff, you know, grocery store workers, you want them to have a voice and an organization and a network. And that's what um, One Day Sooner is trying to do. And so I did a bit of a 180, having spoken to Josh, but um, I'll let you guys decide for yourselves and hand over things now to my conversation with Josh Morrison, the founder of One Day Sooner. You know, I, I heard about the idea of challenge trials uh, just a bit over a month ago, actually, uh, when I read an article by Nir Eyal and Mark Lipsitch and Peter Smith, and, you know, I, I thought about mm-hmm. it, and it made me feel, you know, first, the idea of, wow, you know, you could save months on a vaccine, that seemed pretty incredible to me, because um, I, I live in New York City, sort of the epicenter uh, the pandemic in the U.S. And, right. and a month ago, you know, obviously, like everyone, I was I was really depressed and, and scared and, and, you know, wanted this done as, as soon as possible. And I thought that I could, you know, would I want to do this? And I, I took a little bit to think about it. And I thought, you know, yeah, you know, I, I feel like I'm young, I'm in good health. Um, you know, the, the risks are, are very real, but they're of a level kind of similar to childbirth or kidney donation. Um, that are risks that I'd be willing to accept. But you didn't just stop there at deciding you <laughs> wanted to volunteer. You set up one day sooner to recruit people to volunteer. I mean, talk me through the process that you went through in your mind saying, okay, I'm willing to go through this myself, but am I willing to lead thousands, mm-hmm. tens of thousands of other people into this scenario where potentially some of them could die? Right, right. And it, yeah, and, and that's very, you know, it's obviously very daunting to think about. It's something I, you know, think about really seriously. And, and, um, and you know, like anyone, I'm obviously worried about about that possibility, I think. And I think it's something where, you know, I felt like this was a, a place that I can contribute based on my previous experiences uh, and, and skills. And, and basically, in my day job, 
I run a group uh, that's called Waitlist Zero that advocates for, for kidney donors, so on behalf of kidney donors as a, as a group. With Waitlist Zero, the idea is that if we represent kidney donors and give kidney donors more power over the transplant process, that means donors will be treated better, like giving donors um, like free lifetime health insurance, for example. And then that means more people will donate, which is good for, for society and, and good for the donors and their families themselves. What are you hearing from volunteers? What's motivating them to sign up? The, the common themes, I would say, first is a desire to feel a sense of agency and autonomy and empowerment in a very scary, mm-hmm. disconcerting time. And the feeling of, you know, I want to do something uh, and that's going to, you know, hopefully make things better, but it's also going to make me feel better. Uh, a second thing people often bring up is uh, their their family, particularly having older relatives, but also talking about uh, their children sometimes and wanting to do it kind of on their behalf. So it sounds like now you're at the stage of just gathering names. Have you done any vetting yet to say, okay, this person has a pre-existing condition, probably not a good candidate? The short answer is we don't have that yet. Um, we, we've done a number of things, though, to be um, kind of learning more about our volunteer population uh, and having them kind of, you know, because, again, we want to be representing them. So we want to understand their their views and, and things like that. And so um, what we've been doing so far is we've each week have reached out to a different cohort of volunteers, uh, about 30 to 40, based on partly their responses and partly we try to choose um, some uh, randomly. And we talk to them individually. And then we also do a, a town hall. Uh, we're setting up now um, with researchers uh, at with some bioethicists and challenge trial researchers and social psychologists at uh, Northwestern, Georgetown, Rutgers, and I think Oxford is where uh, Tom is um, to do a, an academic survey uh, of our challenge trial volunteers, so we can really understand their demographics, their motivations, their perceptions of risk, things like that. When I was doing my research for this interview, I was reading your bio, and I understand that you kind of came into, you're a lawyer by training, right? Yes, that's right. That you came into this kind of world of research having been a kidney donor in 2011 to somebody that you didn't know. Um, and you've since gone on to to found a number of very worthy philanthropic organizations. Um, but what do you say to people who might ask, you know, you're not a scientist, mm-hmm. you're not a researcher, mm-hmm. why you, why, you know, what's your business in doing this? Obviously the people who are designing uh, the, the practical elements of a challenge trial need to be, and, and running the challenge trials and, and in general, certainly need to be scientists. And that's, that's absolutely the case. By this, at the same time, we do think there's a unique value in um, hearing from the people who would actually be participating in this. And I think that that comes in sort of two basic ways. One is um, there are both significant practical and ethical questions around challenge trials. We don't take it as a given that challenge trials are definitely going to work, that they're a perfect solution, um, that it's that it's the the yeah that, that's they're they're going to be practically workable. Um, what we do think is that if they're they're going to be practically useful if they're gonna make a meaningful difference in getting a vaccine sooner and a more effective vaccine, even if it's it's just one day, those significant benefits, if there are willing and well-informed volunteers, make it ethically a good idea to, to move forward. 
And insofar as the ethical concerns are about the treatment of volunteers, we think it's really important to highlight that volunteer voice and to have volunteers actually like speaking for ourselves and saying, you know, no, we do understand the risks. If there's a benefit, we do want to move forward. And it also works by the by the reverse token where, you know, there is a world where there's, you know, a public clamor for challenge trials. People kind of want to do it, even when the scientific value maybe couldn't be there. And that's also a place where empowering the challenge volunteers to have a real role in the process can prevent uh, situations where we wouldn't want to be taking risk. That was Josh Morrison, the founder of One Day Sooner. So that's it for this week. We'll be back next Monday. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And head over to foreignpolicy.com to check out our other podcasts, which will help you get through all of those hours in lockdown. Hear first-hand stories from intelligence operatives from around the world in our series, I Spy. And hear stories from the front lines in the fight against climate change in our new podcast series, Heat of the Moment, which is produced in partnership with the Climate Investment Funds. I'm Amy McKinnon. And I'm James Palmer. Our show is produced by Darcy Palder and is edited by Rob Sachs. Our web team includes Laurie Kelly and Kelly Kimball. The executive producer for news and podcasts at Foreign Policy is Dan Efron. Until next time, please remember to wash your hands. And don't touch your face.